This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor. For admirers of the work of Alberto Giacometti, the Swiss sculptor best known for his figures of standing women and walking men so slender as to resemble lines drawn in space rather than three-dimensional objects, the last few years have been exciting ones. So begins Giacometti Renewed, the essay in the September 2018 issue of The New Criterion by Eric Gibson, who joins us today. Eric, welcome. Thank you very much. Eric has been writing for The New Criterion since 1984. His essay in the September 2018 issue is his 77th for the magazine. Eric, your piece has been occasioned by the Giacometti exhibition now on view through September 12. 2018 at New York's Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. But you expanded your scope to consider a new biography by Catherine Grenier, the director and curator of the Giacometti Foundation in Paris, and you conclude with a visit to Giacometti's studio in a new reconstruction by the Foundation in Montparnasse, which you visited over the summer. From your essay, I wonder if you would read for us about the experience of visiting that studio. Thank you. Yes, I'd like to very much. Besides himself, his brother Diego, Annette, and his mother, the other great character in Giacometti's life was his studio. His living and working space for some four decades, it became as legendary as Brancusi's, visited, filmed, and photographed, and meticulously recreated for the film Final Portrait under the watchful eye of the Fondation Giacometti. It was famously small, only about 15 feet square, filled with works in progress, completed works, drawings on the walls, and the materials of creation. And it was just as famously Spartan. Quote, exterior communal toilets, no bathroom, a simple portable stove that did not allow for cooking, an old coal, coal stove for heat. The pipes froze in winter, and the leaks in the roof grew so large that Giacometti's dealer Pierre Matisse had to send them tar paper from New York to seal the gaps, Grenier writes at one point. Oh, and, quote, a plant sprouting through a crack in the wall that he had let grow into a small bush. And the studio is now the first thing you encounter when you visit the Giacometti Institute, literally for it sits just inside the door on the right. It is an extraordinary experience to be in the presence of the real thing after seeing so many photos of it and reading of its centrality to Giacometti's art and life. On the far side are the two original studio walls, the two near walls, as it were, being edge-to-edge, floor-to-ceiling glass panes. Inside the nearmost corner is a long table covered with brushes, paints, and other paraphernalia of the painter. Diagonally across in the far corner is a single bed, with one of the artist's coats thrown across it as if he had just come in. Between are a sculpture stand on which rests a version of the portrait he was working on at his death, his easel and his chair. Next to the chair, a low table with his ashtray, filled. The famous drawings are visible on the far walls, and there is sculpture of all kinds and from all phases of his career everywhere. Among them a group of standing figures, some with their armatures exposed in one corner. Under the table a plaster version of No More Play and other surrealist works. 
On the other side of the room, a plaster of cube, a tall standing woman, and shelf upon shelf of smaller sculptures. Small it is, but it doesn't feel small. In typical Giacometian fashion, he once told someone that, quote, the longer I stayed, the larger it grew. Rather, it feels sufficient to the needs of someone whose art is based on close proximity to and scrutiny of the living model, and who, whether painting or sculpting, always had his work within his arm's reach. In that regard, the whole thing powerfully evokes the presence of the artist, and without sensationalism or artifice, makes you something of a witness to the creative process. There is a window seat on the short wall, and if you sit there and position yourself behind Giacometti's chair, you find yourself exactly at the height and with the same sight line to the easel as he would have had. It's hard to think of another environment that offers such a vivid, direct connection with the artist. Thanks so much. Eric, how has Giacometti been renewed? Well, in several ways. First of all, this exhibition, which is a comprehensive survey, but it is not and not billed as a retrospective. Uh, the main feature of it is that a great deal of the work has been loaned by the foundation, which means a lot of it has not been seen in many years. And of that work, a significant portion of it is work in plaster, showing us for the first time that Giacometti used plaster in a way no other modern sculptor did. Plaster has traditionally been used in sculpture as a kind of journeyman material, an intermediate stage. The artist would make the sculpture in clay, and a plaster cast of it would have to be made before the bronze cast could be made because you can't cast from clay. It will be destroyed in the casting process. So once the bronze was made, the plaster cast, the plaster cast of the original was forgotten about. Giacometti changed that. He would often, since he was so, the, the creative process was an ongoing and uncertain one for him, he would often, when he got to a certain point in the sculpture, ask his brother Diego, who did all of that kind of work for him, to take a plaster cast of the, of the clay as a kind of a snapshot so he could continue to work on the clay. But he would have this plaster cast as, as a reference point to go back to. Uh, in other cases, he would allow a work to be cast in bronze, but then he would go back to the plaster rework it some more, sometimes paint on it. If it was a female figure, he might do the eyes and details of the face. So this is an aspect of Giacometti's production that has hardly been known about. And so it's revelatory in that, in that respect. Uh, the second way Giacometti has been renewed is this biography. Um, Catherine Grenier's new biography is the first since the James Lord bio in the 1980s. Lord is famously the author of what is remains one of the best books about Giacometti, a Giacometti portrait. It's a diary he kept of having his portrait painted by Giacometti in the 60s. 
The Lord biography was welcomed at the time of its publication as the only such work. Um, it hasn't held up very well. It's uh, a rather heavily romanticized view of the artist in many ways. It's very weak on analysis of the work. It's uh, He's very unkind to virtually everybody else in Giacometti's life, including his wife. So the Grenier book is a much more, it is really a clarifying work. It's much more even-handed, balanced. It corrects, it's, it, it's much fairer to Annette, Giacometti's wife, and it tells us things we didn't know. It, it gives a much greater role to his painter father and his development uh, than, we, than we previously knew. And the third way he's been renewed is the recreation of this studio, which, um, as I said in the piece, has been this legendary, legendary uh, locale in the history of modern art. And now to be able to see it and really project yourself into it allow, gives, gives you an enhanced understanding of his work that we've never had before. We can all picture a work by Giacometti in our heads. It, stick figures, incredibly slim what was he up to with those forms? Well, that's a good question because the there, in many ways, Giacometti is an exception to the archetypal twentieth-century artist, and and this is this is in one respect because if you think of someone like Brancusi or Matisse and the late cutouts, the the sort of drive of modern art has been to simplify form, a distillation and a simplification of form. And so it's easy to look at those slender figures of Giacometti's and think that he was up to the same thing. In fact, it was something totally different. He felt that the most important thing an artist could do, his or her fundamental obligation, was to represent reality. For him, for most artists, that could mean simply painting a realistic likeness, sculpting a realistic likeness, of the subject, the figure, but with him it was more complicated. What he wanted was to capture the reality of perception, the figure as seen by him and us in a spatial relationship to us and in the vastness of space. And so the, the those figures are really presented to us, captured on the if you if you imagine someone walking toward you in the street, you think you recognize them, but they're really just a silhouette. And there's a point at which, yes, they come into clear view. He's on that cusp. He is trying to capture the figure as it is sort of forming in our perception. And this means that they are really slender linear, devoid of any of the kind of mass or bulk that we associate with the human figure in nature or the sculpted human figure in the museum. Was Giacometti more of a kind of sculptural impressionist dealing with optical observation? I wouldn't use the word impressionist. He was, he was very uh, involved with, with Maurice Merleau-Ponty's uh, philosophy, and he was, it, it was really about uh, perception and the, the visual experience of seeing. And there was, there was, his life is filled with 
these sort of revelatory moments uh, that experiences in the world that had a profound psychic impact on him. And one of them was right after the war, he was at the movies and he said he suddenly realized that the figures on the on the screen in front of him, although photographically realistic and you know exact images of the people, were ciphers. And that what what was real was not what was on the screen, but the audience members around him and his relationship to them in the totality of space. And that's what he wanted to capture. Um, so no, it was not an, his father was a post-impressionist painter. And when Giacometti was 16 or 17, that he was drawing in his father's studio, his father was painting. And it's a celebrated episode from early in his career. Giacometti is trying to draw a still life of pears. And he keeps drawing and keeps erasing, and this image gets smaller and smaller because he's, and his father doesn't understand this. He says, what's the matter with you? Just draw them. They're right there. And he goes, no, but it's not as simple as that. I'm you know, trying to get them in the field of my vision and in relationship to the space around me. I gather you were surprised by the Guggenheim show and how the sculptures looked in the challenging space of the rotunda. I was. I mean, the, as, as, Everybody knows the Guggenheim is uh, one of the most hostile places for the display of art. And I remember visiting the 1974 Giacometti retrospective at the Guggenheim, and all of the sculptures were installed and contained by the, the, the bays going up the ramp. Um, this installation is totally different, much more imaginative and creative, and, and as a result of which the sculpture can be experienced more, much more fully. They've done things like building platforms out of the bays onto the ramp to allow you to experience the sculptures in the full round. They've been much more creative with lighting. There's one Giacometti sort of early breakthrough surrealist work called uh, Suspended Ball, which is a within a metal cage, there's a plaster sort of lemon slice and dangling above it, very close to it is a, is a sphere with a wedge cut out of it. And there's this incredible tension uh, between the two, sort of sexually suggestive. And they've given it this wonderful high contrast film noir lighting. And it really intensifies that sense of both mystery and menace. And um, there, there are some great juxtapositions. There's a there's a suite of three portraits of his father, uh, each one totally different. One very rudimentary and schematic, the, the second one uh, rather more fully realized, and the third a, a, a realistic, three-dimensionally you know, there portrait. And in any other artist, you would think these were three works spread over 10 or 20 years, you know, one from childhood, one from art school, one from maturity, but no, they were all done in the same year, 1927. Mm -hmm. And and that so succinctly conveys this battle he was having to, to represent the truth, as he put it, of what he saw. You write frequently and eloquently for us about sculpture. What draws you to the plastic arts in particular? 
I honestly don't know. Uh, all I can tell you is it sort of happened in a flash. My parents were very interested in art, and they used to take my sisters and me with them to museums when we were young. And I, I, this was in the early 60s when museums were very different from what they are now. And all I remember from those visits was I hated them because... The, all I all you saw were walls covered with brown canvas and these galleries that went on forever and ever and you turn thinking the stairs to the exit were there but there'd be another one of these things and I particularly disliked the sculpture because it was just these brown and white lumps uh, dotted here and there and then when I was about 15 uh, my mother persuaded me to go with her to a Henry Moore exhibition and it was the proverbial coup de food. I, I, oh, incidentally, I also thought modern art was a joke at that point. So we, we enter the museum and she's in the company of a Philistine and we leave a little while later and she's in the company of an ardent modernist. Something had clicked. And so suddenly I was interested in art. I was interested in modern art and I was interested in sculpture. And it's just something I respond to Instinctively, I love painting, uh, obviously, but there's just something I respond to three-dimensional form sort of more immediately and instinctively. Mm. I, I grew up near the Henry Moore sculpture at Lincoln Center, and mm. I, I certainly had a early reaction to that. It terrified me. Mm. Some kind of dinosaur coming out from the tar pit. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, from the pool of water. That's it. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, you and I are both critic editors, or maybe editor critics. In your day job, you are the arts and review editor of the Wall Street Journal. Do you find writing about art and editing an arts page complementary activities? Well, I, I think they are in the sense that both activities, as a writer and an editor, you've, you've got to keep the reader in mind. Will this come across clearly to them? Am I able to engage their interest in either what I'm writing or what one of my contributors is writing. And particularly important is getting across the experience of the work of art, whether it's a piece of music or a film or, or a work of art. And that's, that's really, I think, the, the biggest challenge in art writing at all, because you can talk about the red stripe in the top left-hand corner all you want, but, but that's going to be rather remote and abstract to the reader. What you've got to try to do is find a way to describe what you're seeing or listening to or walking into uh, in a way that gives the reader a mental picture of it, but also conveys something of what it was like to have that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it took a little while to become comfortable editing my own work as uh, I was the recalcitrant writer mm -hmm. and I was the editor trying to deal with mm -hmm. it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that kind of came late. It, it's interesting. They are complementary, but somewhat different skill sets at the same time. They are. They are. I think it's, I think it's also useful in working with my writers that um, I'm a writer myself because it means that I don't ask them to do anything I haven't had to do myself. If I say, look, we've got to you know, cut a hundred words out of this, I've been through it. If I mm -hmm. say to them, this passage isn't quite clear, 
I've been through it. I mean, people sometimes say to me, oh, well, you're the editor of your section. So that means when you write, you don't have to have your work edited. And I go, no, 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 you don't understand. I want to be edited because I benefit it benefit from it as much as I hope our writers do. Mm -hmm. Do you think these are good times for art criticism? Not particularly. I think I, I, I think it suffers from two problems. One is there's there's one group of individuals who consider themselves critics, but they really are as I describe it, transcribing the press release. There's not a lot of insight to what they write. Often there's not a real, really solid ground of information, uh, of knowledge. Um, and the other, at the other end of the spectrum, there's the uh, highly ideological, highly politicized art writing that makes the work of art, and I use the term broadly, subordinate to um, advancing some kind of political agenda. And I think it's very hard to find, as it were, art for art's sake, criticism. It's something, it's one thing I value by the new criterion. It's something I try to do with, with our efforts at the Wall Street Journal. And it's something readers really respond to. Well, your page is really an oasis for serious Thank art you. writing. Thank you. You've been listening to The New Criterion, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and NewCriterion.com. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. My guest today has been Eric Gibson, Arts and Review Editor of The Wall Street Journal and a frequent and longtime contributor to The New Criterion. His latest essay for us, Giacometti Renewed, appears in the September 2018 issue of The New Criterion. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.